The following class is called Thoughts on Christian Experience and Assurance. Today's subject, we're going to talk about the desire or the quest or the aim for a full assurance of salvation. Quoting from Pilgrim's Progress, it says, Then I saw in my dream that Christian asked him further if he could not help him off with his burden that was upon his back. For as yet he had not got rid of it, nor could he by any means get it off without help. He told him, the interpreter that is, is to your burden, be content to bear it until you come to the place of deliverance, from there it will fall from your back of itself. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation, Isaiah 26, one. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty. Because of the load on his back, he ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place to the cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off of his shoulders, and fell from off of his back, and began to tumble, and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulchre where it fell in, and I saw it no more. When I'm teaching on Pilgrim's Progress, I get to ask this question, is this where Christian got converted? And I always tell him, no, he got converted at the wicked gate. This really, what Bunyan is explaining here, is also explained in the larger catechism, question 81. Are all true believers at all times assured of their present being in a state of grace? and that they shall be saved. The answer is assurance of grace and salvation, not, not being of the essence of faith. It's not in its very essence. True believers may wait long before they obtain it, and after the enjoyment of it may have it weakened, intermitted, through manifold distempers, sins, temptations, and desertions. Yet, are they never left without such a present and support of the Spirit of God as keeps them from sinking into utter despair? Now this full assurance is earnestly desired, and it is highly prized, and the lack of it is much to be lamented, and the enjoyment of it much endeavored after by all saints, yet it is only obtained by a very few. Full assurance, the strongest assurance of the reality of our faith, this is quoting Thomas Brooks. Assurance is a mercy too good for most men's hearts. It is a crown too weighty for most men's heads. Assurance is optimum, maximum, the best and the greatest mercy, and therefore God will give it to his best and dearest friends. It is one mercy for God to love the soul, and another mercy for God to assure the soul of his love. Heaven on earth. A serious discourse touching a well-grounded assurance. Well, there is this pastor, he's also a theologian, teaches at the Protestant Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he attacked this idea. Uh, Dr. Beakey had written his doctoral dissertation on assurance of salvation in the Dutch Second Reformation, and he put it in a more modern format called A Quest for Full Assurance. I have a paperback copy next to my bed. I was studying it the other day. And Engelsma doesn't like the fact that anybody says that assurance isn't of the essence of faith. So he wrote a book which had 
Beaky's book in its crosshairs called The Gift of Full Assurance, and he says of Thomas Brooks' work, quote, Such misleading and spiritual damaging statements as this are nothing but unscriptural hogwash, end quote. And yet he wrote inconsistently, Only in the way of a holy life can and do believers enjoy the assurance that they are the children of God. Well, no Puritan would have disagreed with that. He goes on to say the Spirit witnesses with the spirit of the believers. A believer obeys God's commandments, and only as he obeys God's commandments. The believer has assurance as he walks in holiness of life, and only as he walks in holiness of life. Holiness is a confirming evidence of salvation to the believer, as good works are an evidence of justification. From his book, The Gift of Assurance, The Spirit of Christ, and Assurance of Salvation, quoted in the Protestant Reformed Theological Journal, April 2009, Volume 42, Number 2, Wyoming, Michigan, Protestant Reformed Theological Seminary. But, to show further his inconsistency, he wrote on the Heidelberg Catechism, Question 21, Question, What is true faith? And David Inglesmith says, Faith is assurance of personal salvation. Faith is assurance that the one who, from the heart, believes the gospel is saved now, has been saved from eternity in the decree of election, and will be preserved to everlasting salvation. Faith is absolutely certainty of personal salvation. The only kind of certainty that is certain. A certainty that is not absolutely certain is, in fact, uncertainty, that is, doubt. Such, quote, certainty is worthless. Assurance belongs to the essence or very nature of faith. Assurance is what faith is. That assurance belongs to faith's nature is a fundamental truth about assurance of salvation. Where this is preached as an important aspect of the gospel, the congregation will be blessed with assurance, young and old, weak and strong. Where preachers deny that faith is assurance, Congregations will be full of doubters, doubters who profess to believe the gospel. Many who profess to believe the gospel will live and die in a terror that they may be lost and damned. This is both a dreadful condition and an insult to the gospel, end quote. Well, of course, Dr. David Inglesma has to create a caricature, a straw man, of what these believers are in a congregation. But J.C. Ryle in his book on holiness has a chapter on assurance, and he says a believer may never arrive at this assured hope and yet be saved. I would not desire to make one contrite heart sad that God is never made sad, or to discourage one fainting child of God, or to leave the impression that men have no part or lot in Christ unless they feel assurance. A person may have saving faith in Christ and yet never enjoy an assured hope, such as the Apostle Paul enjoyed. To believe and have a glimmering hope of acceptance is one thing. To have joy and peace in our believing and abound in hope is quite another. All God's children have faith, but all do not have assurance. I think this ought never to be forgotten. I know some great and good men have held a different opinion. I believe that many excellent ministers of the gospel, at whose feet I would gladly sit, do not allow the distinction I have stated. But I desire to call no man master. 
I dread as much as anyone the idea of healing the wounds of the conscience lately, but I would think any other view than what I have given to be a most uncomfortable gospel to preach, and one very likely to keep souls back a long time from the gate of life. I do not shrink from saying that by grace a man may have sufficient faith to flee to Christ, sufficient faith really to lay hold on him, really to trust in him, really to be a child of God, really to be saved, and yet to its last day be never free from much anxiety, doubt, and fear. End quote. I received this letter the first time that I taught this, and this is what it says, and I'll withhold the name this time. Quote, Spent about a year and a half since I realized that I was truly lost, that my profession was false. It all started as terrifying and hopeless, thinking I'd committed the unpardonable sin because of my ignorance and the devil. By the way, that was the last class that I taught on Christian experience and assurance. What is the unpardonable sin? And if you need more light on that, I'd go to the previous lesson, also available on Sermon Audio. But to go on, I struggled for a while until listening to a sermon that helped me see that I didn't commit it. It has been a long and what seems to be hopeless time, but with so much hope cast into my heart from the Lord, I have to believe it has been from Him. And some of the times where I seem to have been only declining and hardening in unbelief, I've been sent books or a testimony or a word as if to keep me going. I come from an Assemblies of God background, so I grew up believing my thoughts and feelings, or rather experiences, were a good place of authority, and based a lot of my judgment or confidence on those things. But I've learned slowly in the past year and a half that I must go to God's Word alone for help. I've learned my sinfulness, so now it seems that my sense and feelings are all gone. There were times that I was constantly struggling with the sin in my heart and having no strength to fight. It seemed helpless. I remember reading the book Desiring God by John Piper, and this is the beginning of my realizing my enmity to God and who he is. Seeing that God lives to glorify himself and all that he does, my heart seemed to be so dissatisfied, and I felt this, and it scared me. It became constant. And questions on God's character and hate to it was in all my reading his word and I couldn't seem to stop and I remember just saying if I'm this bad all I can do is fall on my knees and not long after that I read John 6 verse 37 and to me this was a gift from God to my soul then I read John Bunyan's story or listened to it as it was I believe God showing me that his dealings with him are not different than myself and then sometimes months after, I listened to the Bruce Reed, that would be Richard Sibbs. And in my darkness, I am blessed to have found this book that has helped me apply the truths at time to Jesus as gentle and unwilling to cast even the hardened away. I remember a time when I read Psalm 119. I had read it before, but never were my eyes open to see the world for a time as I did then. I saw how all things were made to glorify God and the beauty of it all. The Lord had been showing me in his word more so in the book of the Gospel of John. Who he was, and in other places how free his mercy was to all who ever came to him. I saw for the first time that no one ever did one thing to be saved, that they just simply must trust him. But how to do that? I don't know. When I pray to him, or rather call on him, my heart or the devil, I do not know, comes in and says, you're trusting in your faith, or trusting in your praying for salvation, so it won't. 
work. My greatest fear, and it seems I don't fear as I should, is that I do not feel a sense of sin as I used to. And if I attempt to do so, it seems to be legalistic motives. And far from a grateful heart, even after so much mercy, I feel hardened and I'm afraid of deceiving myself. I'm constantly thinking that I'm trying to get to Jesus and that he won't accept me for trying to do something when faith is the opposite of trying. At times my mind is so exhausted from exerting itself and trying to convince myself that I don't know what is left or right. I feel like I'm growing harder and can't seem to pray as I should, but don't know if I should be praying as I have been because I don't know if I'm his and to pray for help from God who may be your enemy. It's confusing or rather discouraging, but I pray I have too. All I can do is run to the one who says he won't cast me away. I feel from recent conversation that I may be misapplying some truth to myself, and it could be dangerous. I don't know where I am and don't know if I'm his or not. Deceiving myself is my greatest fear because I see how I do not love him or anyone else but myself. And if I were to walk in grace, I don't know where to begin. Please pray for me. John Owen in his exposition of Psalm 130. Why is this discovery of forgiveness in God mysterious in which very few on gospel grounds attain to? This is his answer. First, the constant voice of your conscience lies against this assurance. Conscience if you've not seared it, inexorably condemns and pronounces wrath and anger upon the soul that is the least guilt cleaving to it. Now, the conscience has this advantage. It lies close to the soul, and by importunity and loud speaking it will be heard in what it has to say. It will make the whole soul attend, or it will speak like thunder. And its constant voice is that where there is guilt, there must be judgment. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Conscience naturally knows nothing of forgiveness. Yea, it is against its very trust, work, and office to hear anything of it. Conscience says, What tell you me of forgiveness? I know what my commission is, and I'll abide by that. You shall not bring in a superior commander across principle into my trust, for if this be so, it seems I must let go of my throne. Another Lord must come in, not knowing as yet how this whole business is compounded in the blood of Christ, the conscience doesn't know about, the business of reconciliation through the blood of Christ. It is not co-natural to it, John Owen is saying. Now whom should a man believe if it's not his own conscience, which, as it will not flatter him, so it intends not to affright him, but to speak the truth, as the manner requires. Conscience has two works in reference to sin. One, to condemn the acts of sin, and another, to judge a person of the sinner, both with reference to the judgment of God. It is, then, no easy thing to make a discovery of forgiveness to a soul. When the work and employment which conscience, upon unquestionable grounds, challenges to itself, lies in opposition to the discovery of forgiveness. So is the soul's great desire to establish its own righteousness in which its natural principles may be preserved in their power. Let self-righteousness be enthroned and natural conscience desires no more. It is satisfied and pacified. The law it knows 
In righteousness it knows, but as for forgiveness, it says, what is that? And to the utmost, until Christ perfects his conquest, there are on this account secret strugglings in the heart against free pardon in the gospel, and fluctuations of mind and spirit about it. Yea, hence are the doubts and fears of believers themselves. They are nothing but the strivings of conscience to keep its whole dominion, to condemn the sinner as well as the sin. More or less, it keeps up its pretenses against the gospel whilst we live in this world. It is a great work that the blood of Christ has to do upon the conscience of a sinner. For whereas it has been declared, conscience has a power and claims a right to condemn both sin and sinner. The one part of this, its power is to be cleared, strengthened, made more active, vigorous, and watchful. The other, to be taken quite away. It shall now see more sins informally, more the vileness of all sins informally, and condemn them with more abhorrence than ever, upon more and more glorious accounts informally. But it is also made to see an interposition between these sins and the person of the sinner has committed them, which is no small or ordinary work. But secondly, the moral law is contrary to a knowledge of forgiveness. It is certain that the law knows neither mercy nor forgiveness. The very sanction of it lies wholly against them. The soul that sins, it shall die. Curse is he that continues not in all things in the book of the law to do them. Deuteronomy 27 verse 26, Galatians 3.10. Hence the apostle pronounces universally, without exception, that they who are under the law are under the curse. And he says in verse 12, the law is not a faith. There is an inconsistency between the law and faith and believing. They cannot have their abode and power together. Do this and live, says the one, or fail and die. It's a constant, immutable voice of the law. This it speaks in general to all, and in this in particular, to everyone, in quote. From the Diary of Jonathan Edwards, December 18th. This day made the 35th resolution. The reason why I in the least question my interest in God's love and favor is one, because I cannot speak so fully to my experience of that preparatory work of which divine speak. Number two, I do not remember that I experienced regeneration exactly in those steps in which divines say it is generally wrought. Number three, I do not feel the Christian graces sensibly enough, particularly faith. I fear they are only such hypocritical outside affections which wicked men may feel as well as others. They do not seem to be sufficiently inward, full, sincere, entire, and hearty. They do not seem so substantial and so wrought into my very nature as I could wish, and for, because I am sometimes guilty of sins of omission and commission. Lately I have doubted whether I do not transgress in evil speaking. This day I resolved, no. Again, let's quote from Ruth Bryan's diary, because it's very, very helpful. Here, I am at this time in a state of much anxiety about my immortal interests. I began to read William Romaine's Life of Faith. I feel an interest in it and see more of the nature of faith than before, but find myself lamentably deficient 
and think that my lack of this precious faith in the dear Redeemer is the cause of my overwhelming distress. Oh, that I could view him as my law fulfiller. Holy Spirit, be pleased to open my eyes to see clearly the finished work. He is wrought out. Be pleased to grant me a sweet view of Jesus as the Savior, who is able and willing to save all who come to him, and enable me to come, to be ever coming in the midst of all my darkness. Oh, grant me faith, strong faith, end quote. And some of you have heard this hymn by John Newton, along the lines of the one that says that I sought the Lord that I might grow. This one says, it's titled, Lovest Thou Me? Tis a point I long to know. Oft it causes anxious thought. Do I love the Lord or no? Am I his or am I not? If I love, why am I thus? Why this dull and lifeless frame? Hardly sure can they be worse, who have never heard his name. Could my heart so hard remain, prayer a task and burden prove? Every trifle give me pain if I knew a Savior's love. When I turn my eyes within, all is dark and vain and wild, filled with unbelief and sin. Can I deem myself a child? If I pray or hear or read, Sin is mixed with all I do. You that love the Lord indeed, tell me, is it thus with you? Yet I mourn my stubborn will, find my sin a grief and thrall. Should I grieve for what I feel, if I did not love at all? Could I joy his saints to meet, choose the ways I once abhorred, find at times a promise sweet, if I did not love the Lord? Lord, decide the doubtful case. Thou who art thy people's son, shine upon thy work of grace, if it be indeed begun. Let me love thee more and more, if I love at all, I pray. If I am not loved before, help me to begin today. From Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward's Cases of Conscience, Question 10. Is it possible for a person to be regenerated or born again, and yet for many years after fear he is not? If we consider the mental circumstances of the person regenerated, that there are yet the remains of sin and unbelief abiding with him, and at the best are much clouded with ignorance, as well as liable to the bewildering temptations of deceitful friends, we don't need to think it impossible for a regenerate person to be afraid that he never experienced that gracious work upon his mind. It is observable that some of Jehovah's most eminent saints have been left, and that in their last distress to call in question the truth of their interest in Christ, and consequently their regeneration. That eminent saint, for example, a minister of Christ, a Reverend Ralph Erskine, late of Dunfermline, Scotland, a precious memory to the church, whose sonnets and sermons will be dear to the saints, while both exist on the earth, and notwithstanding some defects such as attend the best human compositions, fully demonstrate his skill in the Spirit's work, in regeneration and sanctification, likewise his doctrinal acquaintance with the person, grace, and righteousness of Christ add to this his imminent usefulness in the work of the ministration of the word when he came to a deathbed. Ralph Erskine, 
when Erskine came to a death bed, was left in such deep desertion that all of his friends who attended on or visited him could not persuade him from the melancholy reflection that after he had preached to others, he himself was become a castaway. And in a sad and mournful condition, he continued till his friends thought him past speaking. Then, when they least expected, he lifted up his withered hands and clapped them thrice, shouting, Victory! 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 I also find that other northern worthy Samuel Rutherford, writing in his letters, expressing his fears, lest he was but half a Christian. A discovery of the secret abominations of the heart and our helplessness to deliver ourselves from such inbred vermin, for the most part is what our fears do least spring from. Whereas if our eye were fixed on thus, saith the Lord in his word, although we can never be joyful purely because these abominations dwell in our heart, yet we both could and would rejoice that the Lord had discovered them to us. It is a certain proof that God has been here. When his light shines into our darkness, which only can manifest our darkness to us, it is his grace alone that can show us the depravity of her nature. However great the attainments of a hypocrite may be, he never can be capable of mourning over his natural propensity to sin through the depravity of the whole man. And by the way, I apprehend a regenerated person mourns more over this than all of his actual transgressions. When I was doing a study of this for Pilgrim's Progress, I came across a dialogue called The Deathbed of a Believer, a conversation between Robert Shearer and a Mr. Lister. Being informed that Mr. Lister was in the dark as to the state of his soul, I waited upon him. I'm quoting from the book, The Testimony, The Account, and inquired how it was with his inner man, and what he had to say concerning the Lord's goodness. His reply was, Nothing, I have nothing to say. I'm a poor, stupid one. I asked him if in some period of his life he had not met with deliverances from the Lord, and found some joy in his word. He answered, the stony ground hearers received the word with joy, and although he had met with deliverances, they were such as were common. I observed that it seemed to be a common deliverance, a common mercy. Jacob on his deathbed speaks of the God which fed me all my life long, unto this day, and the angel who redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads, Genesis 48, 15 and 16. Now I pose your conscience with this and charge it to tell the truth before God who is omniscient. Do you love the saints? He answered, If my heart doesn't deceive me, I love the saints. Then I said, That is a thing better than receiving the word with joy, than being enlightened, than tasting the heavenly gift, referring to Hebrews 6, 4-6. It is a thing which accompanies salvation. God will not damn the man that loves the saints, 1 John 3, verse 14. We proceeded next to observe that the self-emptiness I perceived about him was another evidence of the grace of God in him, which is always accompanied with self-abasement. Surely, says Agur, I am more brutish than any man and of not the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy, Proverbs 30, verses 2 and 3. 
And he answered back, his self-emptiness was not of the right kind. Quote, Charles Spurgeon and his lecture for Little Faith. Little Faith is always sure of heaven. For God has begun the good work in him and will carry it on. God loves him and will love him unto the end. God has provided a crown for him, and he will not allow the crown to hang there without a head. He has erected for him a mansion in heaven, and he will not allow the mansion to stand untenanted forever. Little faith is always safe, but he very seldom knows it. If you meet him, he is sometimes afraid of hell, very often afraid that the wrath of God abides on him. He will tell you that the country on the other side, the flood, can never belong to a worm so base as he is. Sometimes it is because he feels himself so unworthy. Another time it is because the things of God are too good to be true, he says. For he cannot think they can be true to such an one as he is. Sometimes he is afraid he is not one of the elect. Another time he fears that he has not been called right, that he didn't come to Christ right. Another time his fears are that he will not hold on to the end, that he shall not be able to persevere, and if he kill a thousand of his fears, he is sure to have another host by tomorrow. For unbelief is one of those things that you cannot destroy. It has as bunning as many lives as a cat. You may kill it over and over again, but still it lives. It is one of those ill weeds that sleep in the soil even after it has been burned, and it only needs a little encouragement to grow again, end quote. Returning to the story of Robert Shearer and a Mr. Lister. Here Lister opened his mind more fully and told me, quote, that the Lord did begin to work in his soul about nine or ten years of age, and that then his conscience was struck with the arrows of conviction for the sins of his former years, which made him tremble, and the remembrance of them still galled him. Indeed, he said, these convictions were a mean in the Lord's hands of keeping me from youthful follies at the college. But when he heard Christians talk of words coming with power for their relief, it always sunk his spirits, as he had always so little to say that way. I answered, you know that self-examination is an ordinance appointed by God for bringing persons to clearness as to the quality of the work on them and from what had passed he might perceive the work of God on his heart to be saving, and so a spring of comfort, so far as it evidenced union to Christ, in whom all the seed of Israel shall be justified. But in regard of the comfort arising from Marx was very variable and fluctuating, it was both his duty and interest to have his eye fixed on an absolute promise, such as that I am the Lord your God, Exodus 20 verse 2 or that I am, even I, am he that blots out your transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember your sins. Isaiah 43.25 That the blood of Jesus shed for the remission of sins is brought near in these, or the like words, was a never-failing and an overflowing source of consolation. All true Christians, as the godly divine expresses it, when they come to die and to knock at heaven's gates for entrance into their master's joy, do mind far otherwise the blood that bought the inheritance and anything wrought in them to make them fit for it, or than any pains they have been at in walking or running a race towards it. The greatest part of the believer's inherent righteousness in this world lies in his faith 
going out of himself to Christ for all, end quote. Again, quoting J.C. Ryle on assurance. But all this time, be it remembered, the poor believing soul may have no full assurance of his pardon and acceptance with God, may be troubled with fear upon fear and doubt upon doubt. He may have many an inward question and many an anxiety, many a struggle and many a misgiving, clouds and darkness, storm and tempest, to the very end. I will engage, I repeat, that bare simple faith in Christ shall save a man, though he may never attain to assurance. But I will not engage it shall bring him to heaven with strong and abounding consolations. I will engage it shall land him safe in the harbor, but I will not say he shall enter that harbor in a full sail, confident and rejoicing. I shall not be surprised if he reaches his desired haven, weather-beaten and tempest-tossed, scarcely realizing his own safety till he opens his eyes in glory. I believe it is of great importance to keep in view this distinction between faith and assurance. It explains things which an inquirer in religion sometimes finds it hard to understand. Faith, let us remember, is a root and assurance is a flower. Let's say that again. Faith is a root. And assurance of salvation is a flower. Doubtless you can never have the flower without the root. But it is no less certain you may have the root and not the flower. Faith is that poor trembling woman who came behind Jesus in the press and touched the hem of his garment, Mark 5, verse 25. Assurance is Stephen standing calmly in the midst of his murderers and saying, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Acts 7, verse 56. Faith is a penitent thief crying, Lord, remember me. Luke 23, verse 42. Assurance is Job sitting in the dust, covered with sores and saying, I know that my Redeemer lives, End quote. Now returning to Robert Shira and Mr. Lister, the end of the story. While discoursing thus, by his eager looks and elevated hands, testified his approval. Afterwards, he took a little food and being inclined to rest, we withdrew. On our return, he fillingly uttered these words whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. It declares righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and a justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Romans three twenty-five and 26, and then signified that last night, being of his last Sabbath night on earth, he was constrained to cry out to the view he had gotten of Christ, is a propitiation for his sin. By the grace of God, I look and will look to the blood of Christ as a propitiation for my sin, and I am sure I will never perish. And then Mr. Lister added, Among all the redeemed company, I shall be the greatest monument of free grace. I could not but observe to him that God, who is a revealer of secrets, had last night made that manner of sweet meditation to him which he had directed me to speak of in the forenoon. And I may, I must say, with Jeremiah, great is his faithfulness. His promise is, surely, shall one say, In the Lord have I righteousness and strength. Isaiah 45.25 God has made out that promise last night to you. Blessed be his name. Now the end of the story of Mr. Lister's liberation, freedom, assurance. On Wednesday morning about eight, 
I was called for and told that it had been an extraordinary night of God with Mr. Lister, and that he was desirous of seeing me. I went to him, and though he was seized with a fit of coughing as I entered the room, yet he instantly stretched out his right hand and taken hold of mine, said, Come, oh, come, and rejoice with me. I replied, I understand the salvation of God has come to this house in a very uncommon manner this night, and that I came on purpose to rejoice with him and help him to praise the precious Redeemer. After a short pause, he said, I've been a poor man all of my life, held under and bound by the cords of atheism and unbelief. However, this night the Lord came and not only loosed my bonds, but sent a multitude of the heavenly host to carry my soul home to heaven. To which I replied, All praise to God and the Lamb. Thursday morning an express mail came for me and told me if I did not make haste, I would not see Mr. Lister in this life. I hasted and found him revived. Sometimes he roved, but seemed to have a deep concern upon his heart about his congregation. I told him he would see several of them in heaven and name two of them. And one of his parishioners being present said he hoped he would see some seals of his ministry in heaven. After we prayed together, I told him I was going to the country to examine and hoped the Lord would be with us both. He said he hoped so and added, I never had so much hope in God all of my life as I have now. I then, touching on his shoulder, said, You are a piece of Christ's mystical body. Yes, he said. I have a being, a new being in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On Friday I asked him, How was he doing? And he answered, Not amiss. He roved much through this day, but in the midst of his rovings, he still expressed a concern about his congregation, as we learn from his pronouncing that word, congregation, and his addresses to the throne of grace. The last words which a near relation heard him utter before he passed away were these, Where I am, there shall also my servant be. Worthy, 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 and then he fell asleep. And that only worthy one to whom with the loving Father and blessed Spirit be all glory forever and ever. Amen. So, quoting from Archibald Alexander once again in Thoughts on Religious Experience. Among some classes of religious people, all doubting about the goodness and safety of our state is scouted as inconsistent with faith. It is assumed, is intuitively true, that every Christian must be assured of his being in a state of grace. And they don't have any charity for those who are distressed with almost perpetual doubts and fears. This they consider to be the essence of unbelief, for faith, according to them, it's a full persuasion that our sins are forgiven. No painful process of self-examination is therefore requisite, for every believer has possession already of all that could be learned from such an examination. Now that would describe somewhat of the Protestant Reformed theologians, and on the other extreme, we had a denomination early in his days, a Netherlands Reformed congregation, and that is before Dr. Beakey came to one of these churches in Grand Rapids on Crescent Avenue, I believe it is, for these other groups. Doubting is to be feared too much encouraged, and serious Christians are perplexed with needless scruples originating in the multiplication of the marks of conversion, which sometimes are very difficult to apply, 
and in other cases are not even scriptural, but arbitrary, set up by the preacher who values himself upon his skill in detecting the close hypocrite. And whereas he wounds a weak believer in ten cases, where he awakens a hypocrite only in one, I once heard one of these preachers whose common mode was harsh and calculated to distress a feeble-minded, and he attempted to preach in a very different style. He seemed to remember that he should not break the bruised and broken reed, nor quench the smoking flags. Isaiah 42, verse 3, Matthew 12, 20. A person of a contrite spirit heard the discourse with an unusual comfort. But at the close, the preacher resumed his harsh tone and said, Now you hypocrites will be snatching at the children's bread. On a hearing of which the broken-hearted hearer in the congregation felt himself addressed, and it caused him to throw away all of his comfort which he had already received. And though there might be a hundred hypocrites present in the congregation, yet not one of them cared anything about the admonition. I recollect a sickly but pious lady who with a profusion of tears expressed her anxiety and fear in the view of her approaching in. She was on her deathbed. There seemed to be ground for her foreboding apprehensions because from the beginning of her Christian profession she had enjoyed no comfortable assurance. But it was of the number of those who, though they fear God and obey the voice of his servant, yet walk in darkness and have no light, Isaiah 50 verse 10, no light of comfort, but mark the goodness of God and the fidelity of the great shepherd. Some months afterwards, I saw this lady on her deathbed and was astonished to find that Christ had delivered her entirely from her bondage. She was now near to her end and knew it. But she shed no tears now but those of joy and gratitude. All her darkness and sorrow were gone. Her heart glowed with love to the Redeemer. And all her anxiety now was to depart and be with Jesus. There was, as it were, a beaming of heaven in her countenance. I'd before tried to comfort her, but now I sat down by her bedside to listen to the gracious words which proceeded from her mouth and could not but send up the fervent aspiration. Oh, let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like hers. Numbers 23.10 Then I knew that there was one who had conquered death, and him who has the power of death. For Satan to the last moment was not permitted to molest her. End quote. And that is our lesson on Assurance of Salvation. And in the next study, we're going to discuss Chapter 4, Varieties of Experience, and especially when it is affected by the temperament, and what the old theologians called religious melancholy. And that lesson is called The Dark Night of the Soul. This is the voice of the Narrated Puritan Podcast. Thank you for tuning into this class on Christian Experience and Assurance.